0: Thank you, Scott. Well, if you haven't turned yet in your Bibles, please do turn to uh, Isaiah chapters 54 and 55. Uh, and these chapters uh, announce salvation. Uh, and and uh, the word that Scott used, I think, is just perfect There's this invitation, this call. Uh, to participate in, to rejoice in this reality of, of God's salvation, the, the, the future uh, that all believers have in store. Um, our true statement, I put this up on the screen for you, God promises eternal forgiveness and life now to be fully enjoyed in a glorious new earth, in the future, uh, to all who turn to Him and trusting in His word. So God promises eternal forgiveness, life now to be fully enjoyed in a glorious new earth in the future to all who turn to him, trusting in his word. So Isaiah 54, um, it opens up and there's this this cause for praise as God will will trade uh, abundance for emptiness He'll trade uh, honor for shame, eternal love for lonely despair. Uh, This is who God is. If you don't know the Lord, if you don't know Yahweh, the God of Scripture, this is who our God is. So let's jump right into verse 1. To sing, O barren one who did not bear, break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. And the pain of barrenness is this story that we see throughout Scripture uh, many, many times. We see it right away with Abraham and Sarah. We see it with Hannah. We see it others in the Old Testament. When we get to the New Testament, we see it with Elizabeth, who's barren before uh, having John the Baptist. Um, Israel was spiritually barren uh, because of their unbelief. But now because of the work of the servant, which we've been reading about the servant for several weeks now, if you haven't been with us, Because of the work of the servant, anyone who will turn to the servant who are lonely, dejected, barren, they have reason now to shout for joy. And certainly the only reason that that would cause a a barren woman to shout for joy, to just burst out into song, is her barrenness is over. So she cannot help but do that. Verse 2, it says... Enlarge the place of your tent. Let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen the cords. Strengthen your stakes, for you will spread abroad to the right and to the left. And your offspring will possess the nations and will people desolate cities. So uh, apparently, it was the uh, job, uh, the role of the wife, the woman, to uh, set up and maintain the family tents in the Near East. And, and this barren woman is told um, that that she she's, she needs a bigger tent, right? She needs she needs a bigger tent because she is no longer going to be barren. She is going to have kids. She needs to get it ready. Right? She needs to stretch those walls out. She needs to lengthen the core. She needs to get maybe even bigger stakes and pound them in deeper to the ground because it's going to support, it needs to support this much bigger tent because it's going to be filled with the, the, the offspring that God is providing. And so there's belief that comes into play here. There's faith. There's a need to trust in what God has said. She doesn't have these kids yet. There's no sign to confirm that. Yes, you definitely need a bigger tent. Right? She's not. She, she hasn't just had a baby and another one on the way. The imagery is that this barren woman has been promised that the barrenness is over, that there will be children. And in faith, she's getting this family tent ready for the Lord's abundant provision. God's people have always been a people that were called to live by faith, that we would trust in the promises of God even when they're not fully fulfilled yet by him. And I think another... Um, I think there's another encouragement here for Israel. At this point, they're not living in tents anymore, but they, they know their history. They, they remember the last time they were dwelling in tents. It was when they were in the wilderness after the exodus. So I think that there's a reminder here that just as God provided for them then, just as God guided them then, that he's going to do the same now. Right? They won't simply survive. They're, they're going to thrive. Verse four says, fear not. For you will not be ashamed, be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he's called. So for the barren woman of that time, there was a deep sense Of shame. It was viewed as failure if you were not able to have kids. It was assumed that you were barren for a reason. There was some kind of sin in your life, or for some reason, you were not worthy to have children. And the call here is do not fear. You're going to have so many kids that you won't even remember that shame that you used to feel because God, your maker, He is your husband. This is the Holy One of Israel. This is the Lord of armies. This is the God of the entire earth. That is your husband. And the chapter goes on to describe the security that God's people will have, the peace that they will feel. Um, chapter 54 is, uh, is great. And we, we look and we realize that the tone has just changed in, in, in Isaiah. Right? Israel need not fear destruction Anymore. Instead, they have a bright future. So we have to ask ourselves, well, what's brought about this, this sharp change? Well, it's the work of the servant that for weeks we've read about. It's not because of Israel and what they've done, but, but the work of the servant. God will look upon his people with approval, with favor. Right? Their problem was their sin had not been atoned for. And as we read last week, the servant will step in. He will atone for their sin. He will be the guilt offering in their place. And what they must now do is follow the servant, trust in him, and be saved. And the rest of 54 is great. But I've been feasting on 55, so we're jumping to one now. Please join me. Verse one, it says, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money, without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me. Eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. So God makes this invitation here, right? right in verse 1, he says, come four different times. So it's an invitation. And, well, who's it to? It's to everyone. But there's, we see two kinds of people here. Verse 1, there's those who are thirsty and they're hungry, but they're broke. Right, right? They cannot get this this good food, this good drink that they need. It flashes in me back to our time in the Beatitudes, right? Think about the, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, right? These are people that recognize, they've come to a place that they see, I'm spiritually bankrupt. I've got nothing. They, they see, they feel, they sense this deep spiritual need that they have, so they're hungry for it. They're thirsty for it. They realize that this hunger and this thirst is for the food, for the drink that only God can provide. Because they've tasted. They've tasted what the world offers to drink. They've tasted the food of the world and it's left them wanting. So that's the first type of person here that's invited the spiritually thirsty and hungry, the, those that, that realize they're, they're broke and, and, and cannot even purchase it on their own. And then verse 2, we get those who, uh, who think that they can get what they long for. They think that they know how, how to go after what they desire. There's a hunger with these people, for sure. They're, they're thirsty. They think they have the resources to go out and get what they want. They, they work hard to pursue their goals, Right? They work hard to, to, uh, to get the positions in life that they want or, or the things in life that they want. They have means. And if they, if they don't have the means in the moment, then they, they can work hard. They can labor for the means to get what they want to chase their dreams. But look what it says. It says, why do you spend money for what is not bread? You're buying what you think will satisfy, but it doesn't. Do you remember rice cakes? Like, I think they might have been called puffed rice cakes. And my apologies if you like these things. Um, they were, if, if you don't want the, know what they are, they're like these circle biscuit-type shape, like, and it's puffed rice pressed together. And, and they're this low-calorie, um, truly nearly nutritionless food that you would eat. I'm not, that's not a joke. Like... <laughs> Google it. Um, uh, so at some point in my life as an adult, I said, I should eat these. And I lied to myself. And I told myself that I liked them. And they were terrible. They were like, they're like eating styrofoam. And and the companies that made them realized that everyone thought this is like eating styrofoam. So they added lots of flavor to them. And then it was like eating styrofoam with lots of flavor. And so for me, I got to the point, after who knows how many packages of these things, I got to the point, I said, what am I doing? Right? This, why am I eating this thing that does nothing for me? It doesn't taste good. It doesn't provide anything meaningful. And this is like what he's saying here. He's like, why are you, why are you spending money on what isn't even bread? Right? Why are you spending money? Why are you laboring for what in the end does not satisfy you? It's a dead end. So, these are the, the two kinds of people. Both are hungry and thirsty. One is recognized, though, that the world's food and drink does not satisfy. The other is chasing food and drink that, that won't satisfy, but they have not figured that out yet. And God's inviting both. Right? He's inviting every person, come, eat, drink, listen diligently to Him that your soul may live. So, w- what's He giving? Right? He offers water, milk, wine, food. Water. Uh, we have to have water. Right? I think we can go like three days without water before we die or, or about three days. We absolutely need water to live, right? Even just after maybe a couple of hours without drinking water, like your body starts sending your signals, your, your brain starts telling you like, man, your mouth's dry. You need to drink something. We, we need water. God gives us this, what we need to live. And there's milk, right? It, it, it gives us, God gives us nourishment, uh, we have multiple uh, infants right now. Like, you, you know better than I do, you remember better than I do, that, that babies want milk so bad. They need milk to develop, right? And, and a baby, when, when they feel this need for this nourishment through the milk, like, they might give subtle clues for a little bit. <laughs> That's perfect timing. Um, <laughs> we couldn't have paid for that. Um, uh, it, but eventually, right, it, it, they're going to start screaming for milk, right? They, they know on some level they understand, I need this milk to nourish my body. I need this milk in order to grow and to develop. Right? God nourishes us. He gives us what we need he nourishes us so that we can grow in him. Like if you just think back through this last week, like how has God nourished you? How has God met you right with what you need so that you could continue to grow in him, so that you wouldn't be this, this malnourished Christian, but that you would, you would grow in him. I guarantee that he's done that this week, maybe without you even noticing. What about this wine? Right? Like, like it's it's joyous, it's it's celebratory. Right? We aren't just going to celebrate someday at, at the marriage supper of the Lamb. We aren't just going to be joyful someday in eternity. God gives us joy now. He gives us reason to be joyful, even, even in the hardships of life. There is joy in him. So, brothers and sisters in Christ, is there joy in your life as a Christian? Or, or are, you, are you the Christian version of Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh? Just this... This dark cloud following you everywhere, and it's and it's rare that there's joy in your life of following Christ. He gives us food, and it's it's rich food. It's nothing like the puffed rice cakes. It's top notch what He's providing, and He provides it abundantly. Right? He says, He says, delight yourselves in this rich food. Dig in, enjoy, savor my family. Um, we got a gift card to go to Buffalo Wild Wings, and uh, I couldn't end up going with them, so I, I told them my order, and, and they got it for me. And um, And it was like hours later that I was able to meet up, and it's like 8 o'clock at night. I normally eat dinner at like 5 or 5.30, so I'm famished at this point, and I, I, uh, I heat up the wings, and I should be embarrassed by this, but I'm not really. I'm a vocal eater. Um, like I, I I'm, lots of words, sounds. I won't replay it for you, um, and I'm also a strategic eater, right? So I start with my Thai curry wing and I, I eat that thing and then I move on to my honey barbecue wing and then I move on to my sweet barbecue wing and I, I want different flavors so I can get these just pops of, uh, in my palate and experiencing all these different flavors and I'll get back to the Thai curry wing and I, I'm like, oh my goodness, this is so good. Like I'd never eaten anything before. I was just delighting in this thing. It got this Delight. Delight in this rich food and there's no need to worry that it's going to run out. We remember in John 4 with Jesus and the woman at the well and he's talking to her about this, this living water. He says to her, but whoever drinks the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So he, he gives us, he's offering this, this drink, this food, So how do we respond? Well, he tells us to come. He's really clear about that. Come, that you may live. And maybe you remember before trusting Christ, like you thought you were living, but then you come to him. He gives you life and you realize, oh, what was going on before was not life. Like it was was an imitation at life, but now this is life. And he tells us he's making this covenant with us like he did with David. And he will not break His covenant. He's committed. He's committed to pursuing us uh, with his steadfast love. He will not stop coming after us with his grace, with his mercy, with his compassion. He'll strengthen us. He will sustain us. He will continue to sanctify his people out of this deep, committed love for us. So the first thing is have you come to the Lord? Have you drawn near to the Lord? And then he says to come and buy and eat, right? If you've drawn near to the Lord, but you you find yourself holding back from him, are you drinking in what the Lord has given you? Are you eating the food? And maybe... Maybe you get caught up. There's strange wording here when, when it says that we, we buy without price. We buy with no money. This is a weird transaction, and, and maybe that's, that's what, hold, what is holding you back because you, you look in life and you're like, nothing is free, and you're right. right? To, to God, it was not free, but to us, he freely gives it, it to us. We're spiritually bankrupt. We, we come to him offering nothing because we have nothing to pay for the life that he gives but we respond in faith that he is He's the forgiver of sins, that he is everything that we need. We trust that he is the one that was able to foot the bill for us, and we reap the reward. So stop holding back. Take the water, the milk, the wine, the food. But don't just take it. Drink it in. Eat it. Right. It would be so strange to order a drink or, or, or um, I don't know, a plate of like, prime rib or, or copper river salmon or whatever. It'd be strange to order that and, and then like take it home and then put it on a shelf. No, you'd never do that. You, you would eat it. There's, we don't just want to know about God, but we want to know him, and there's an experiential knowing of God. Right? There's life, there's nourishment, there's joy, there's satisfaction in living in him and for him and through him. He says that we need to listen to him. We need ears that that are inclined to him. We need to listen diligently that we may hear him. And throughout Isaiah, we've read, he's talked about people that, that do not have ears to hear God, that do not have ears to hear the message, the good news of the gospel to respond. We want to have ears that are fully attentive. He says, hear that your soul may live. Well, how do we hear God in a way that gives life to our soul? It's by his word, and we'll get more into that in verse 11. Let's go to verse 4 and 5. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. God's made him a witness to the peoples. Jesus came as a witness to the truth. He said uh, in response to Pilate in John 18, he said, for this purpose I was born, for this purpose I've come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Israel was supposed to be this witness to the world. They were were the servant that failed, and God sent his servant that would not fail. The Christ would come, and he would bear witness to the truth. Isaiah's been clear from the outset that, that this message was never just intended for the Jewish people, right? It wasn't even just intended for uh, for the nations right around them, but that it would it would be for the world that God was going to save some from every people to Himself. He's given multiple times this imagery in the book of of God, like making like a highway to His people, so that people from all over the world could come to Him. God's people are the ones that, that have responded. In, in verses 1 and 2, they've responded to the invitation to come, to eat, to drink, to live, to hear, and, and there to be a part of calling the nations. Right? They see the, the witness of the servant to the world. They follow his leading, and they call. And it says a nation that, that you do not know. Right? Like I said, this is not just meant for even the Gentiles right around them, but nations that they didn't even know of yet nations that they'd never heard of. And, and we live in a remarkable time in, uh, in missions. Um, not only do we know every nation, but we, we, have, we have it down to people groups. Uh, so not, not just defined by geography, um, but, but also by culture, by language. We know, we know what groups have a gospel presence, what, what groups have a gospel movement in them. We know the groups that have... Uh, almost no gospel presence or, or possibly even zero gospel presence. Um, uh, on our website, we've got a, a missions tab. And if you've never gone to, I'd encourage you to go there. There's multiple good resources there for you. But one I want to point out is, uh, is through Joshua Project. Um, Joshua Project has a website. They have a, a mobile app. Uh, you can sign up for daily emails. And they'll, they'll send you uh, unreached people group of the day and how to pray for them. Um, there are something like 17,000 uh, people groups in the world, and 7,403 of those are, are, are classified as unreached people groups. That's about 3.27 billion people. So the crazy thing to me is that this afternoon, you could be, you could be stuck in line at Target and just waiting and, and pull out your phone, and, and you could open their little app or go to their website and, and, and start praying for the Manuki people group in, in Myanmar. It's a group of about 20,000 people that Joshua Project is, is trying to get us to pray for today, right? So 20,000 people, less than the size of the city of Camas, and they've been identified. You can pray for them. You can pray for the missionary efforts there. You can pray for the, the handful of Christians that are there. There are some. You can praise God that they have a complete Bible in their language. We, we can do that today. So it is just remarkable to me that, that God will, will bring the nations to himself by the witness of the servant by Jesus, and we are tasked in, in, in joining in that calling to the nations. Luke ten sixteen, he says, He who, he who hears you hears me. Let's listen to this message in, in verse 6. 55, 6, and 7. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Now is the time to seek the Lord. Don't waste another moment. Just last week, uh, last Sunday, we had Goldie Schwartz's funeral here. And I know a lot of you here named Goldie Schwartz, and you have no clue who she was. Uh, she was here for decades. If you saw her, you would recognize her. Um, but she was a quiet, quiet woman who loved the Lord. If you didn't start a conversation with her, there was no chance that you would get in one with her. Um, but, but I tell you about her. Her son, just in this last year, uh, came, came, came back to the Lord. Um, he, he, he'd heard about Jesus growing up. He'd professed some kind of belief, but walked away from the Lord for 25 years. And he said in this last year, he just said, I can't believe I wasted 25 years of my life. And he said, I do not want to waste another day because living without Jesus for 25 years was a waste and seek the Lord while he may be found. Right, it says to turn from sin and wickedness, even, even in our thinking, right? Stuff that no one could ever see, even in our thoughts, we're to turn from our sin and wickedness. And I just wonder, like, when I, when I say that, when God's word says that, do you instantly know, like, yeah, I need to stop this thing that I just keep holding on to, this thing that the Lord maybe for years and years has told me to let go of, and yet I keep justifying. I've got this death grip on this thing, or or maybe I let go of it sometimes only to run back. He says, let go, forsake your wickedness. We cannot seek the Lord and pursue sin. And and I don't mean that we don't struggle with sin, that we don't battle the flesh as a believer. There are times where we fall flat on our face. But man, we, we, we cannot seek the Lord. And continue after sin, the, the Christ follower looks to the Lord. Right? This this there's, there's been this trust in the Lord all throughout Isaiah. We're to trust in Him and not to look to other things. Remember back in Isaiah thirty-one-one. He says, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses, right? They were trusting in Egypt to help save them. They were trusting in their horses. It says, who trust in, in chariots and their mi- uh, 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 because they are many, and in horsemen because they're strong. Right? Don't trust in these other things. But uh, and then it says, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult him and return to the Lord. Trust In the Lord, look to him, he will forgive you, right? There's no, he may forgive you here. No, he will forgive you. He will have compassion on you. Turn to the Lord, forsake evil, sinful ways, evil thoughts, trust and rely on his compassion and his forgiveness. And then look at verse eight. He says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours and my thoughts higher, and my thoughts than your thoughts. We seek the Lord who is nothing like us. His thoughts and his ways could not be further apart from ours. He says, to try and help us understand, he says, as far as the heavens are apart from the earth. How many times has Isaiah broken down for us that there is none like God, There's none like him in his holiness, none like him in his power, none committed like him, none who love like him, none who can save, who can forgive sin like him, none sovereign like him. Verse seven just said, forsake wickedness and evil thoughts and return to the Lord. Why? Because eight and nine, look at who he is. Right? He's, he is far beyond us, and yet he will forgive us. Why would we not turn to him? Micah 7:18 says, Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquities, another word for sin, and passing over transgression, again, another word for sin, for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He's greater than we understand. But fortunately, he gives us this, this image here of the distance between heavens and earth, the, the gap between who God is and who we are is absolutely massive. Verse 10 it says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word. Be that goes out from my mouth it shall not return to me empty but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it right we we just read about how much higher God's thoughts are than ours how much how much higher his ways are than ours this this distance that's the, that we can kind of grasp as he talks about the distance between the heavens and earth and, and now we see what he says in verse 10 right that this the, the rain is and snow travel this great distance between heaven and earth. Right? It waters, it causes vegetation to sprout, it gives seed and bread. And so does God's word. Yes, the distance between God and us, his ways, his thoughts, and ours is great. We cannot bridge this gap, but he has by his word. His word will accomplish what God has determined to accomplish Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 says, Long ago, many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. John 1, 1 and 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So Jesus, who, who John rightly explains to us is the word made in us between heaven and earth, the rain and the snow have come down from heaven. He's given us his word. And I know I feel like a broken record. I could talk about this. We talk about this a lot, that we believe we need God's word. If we're going to follow Christ, we have to be a people of his word. We believe that God has given us his word for for our good, that he has revealed himself through the word. We believe that Jesus, the word, came into the world not to condemn the world, but to save people out of the world. That God's word will accomplish, like he says here, what he has purposed. It will not return empty. So is God's word a part of you? brothers and sisters in Christ? Where is it in your day, both in planned, purposeful ways and, and maybe even in unplanned ways? Are you trying to follow God without just regularly having this diet of his word, eating the richness of his word? I just heard someone say this, and I can't remember who it was, uh, but they said that they're afraid for this current generation of young people and young adults that they'll be incredibly passionate about Jesus, but not know him. We get to know God through his word. This is how he has revealed himself to us. So it has to be a part of the believer's daily life. If you come here on Sundays or students, if you come here on Wednesdays, and that's the only time you get God's word, you're a malnourished believer. You need God's word. You need to daily eat the richness of his word. Don't buy the lie that, that this book is just a book for super Christians. It is for every follower of Jesus. So I encourage you, don't even, don't even just try to read it by yourself. Get someone that will partner with you, right? Whether you're doing a read-through or, or a study or, or tonight, Sunday nights at Harvest, we're, we're starting uh, a study of the book of James. Like Come, like, get in God's word. Let's keep going. Verse 12. Of God's people. This is the future of believers. This is after the curse has been removed from the world. And there's no room to wonder here, like, what will that be like? What will that feel like? It says we'll be filled with joy. And, and certainly in this life, and we've already talked about this a bit, to some degree, we know joy and happiness right now. But even on the best days that we have, there are problems the life of the Christ follower this side of eternity is one of both joy and sorrow, as Scripture tells us. We have everything to be thankful for in Christ, and we look around and we see how broken this world is. We see the, the pain of this world. right? We, we see our sin. We see the sin of others. We, we see injustice that makes our blood boil. Right? There's much to be sorrowful about even as we have the joy of knowing the Lord. But one day when our Lord makes everything right, we'll be filled with joy. It says says that we'll be led in peace. So we won't even have to search diligently on our own own to hunt down peace. No, our our turmoil, both inner and, and outer turmoil, will be no more. Our Lord will lead us in peace. He will be victorious. He will see all of this to completion. And I, I know that life is hard right now. And I'm not even just talking about like the last two years. But our world is so broken. And I'm sure that you, like me, you, you know and love people that it just seems like they will never turn to Jesus. Like you, you can't see an inch of progress in their life. Like we, we look around and we see God's name and, and his ways just mocked all over the place. right? There are things in our culture right now that, man, if I could, if I could go back and talk to my grandpa and, and tell him some of the things that people say right now, some of the things that people do, some of the things that, that people believe, I don't even think he could comprehend our, our culture right now. Our world is so, so broken, but look at the promise of the future that Isaiah can see. Right? Look at what he can see after the curse is taken care of fully by our Lord. The mountains will burst forth into singing. The, the forests, the trees will clap. Paul talks in Romans eight nineteen about creation eagerly longing for the revealing of the children of God. And that is is what's going on here. Creation is waiting to just erupt in celebration. What that'll look like, what that'll sound like, I don't know, but it will be spectacular. Verse eleven, he says, the thorns will be replaced by the cypress tree. Remember back to Genesis three, where Adam and Eve, they 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 disobey God, they rebel against Him, they get these. They find out the the curses that that come with their rebellion. Adam's told that he's going to work the ground now, but it's cursed. That he's going to labor and toil to work the soil, but there's going to be thorns and thistles that will grow from the ground that he's going to have to fight. And God's letting us know here in Isaiah 55 that that curse given to Adam, the curse that's been here ever since, God's lifting the curse. So where there was thorn, now there will be cypress in its place. Remember where we see thorns in the Gospels? The the crown of thorns mockingly put on Jesus' head. They had no idea what they were doing, but God did. Jesus, the king, was carrying that curse in his body. He was carrying the curse of the thorns even on his head. Isaiah could see that one day where there were thorns, there would now be a cypress tree. So instead of fighting the thorns and trying, instead of trying to cut them back or even rip the roots out, there'd be a cypress for us to sit under and enjoy its shade. I I love that imagery. And then the end of 13 says that God's going to make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that will not be cut off. And obviously God, and what we're told he's going to do, he's completely worthy of that. He's completely worthy of, of everyone knowing his name, his great name, that everyone will recognize who he is, that his name will be great in all of creation. So what, what does that look like? Well, I think there's a clue here in the beginning of the phrase, it shall make a name. right? What is the it? We just read in 12 and beginning in 13, the future that God has made for his people. He's going to make a name for himself by gathering his people, by giving them peace and joy. His people will know true peace, real joy. His people will exist in this remade creation, this this Garden of Eden 2.0. This is how good God is, that as he glorifies himself, It's directly connected to him blessing his people to doing everything that he promised he would do, getting his people to the true promised land. And we keep reading about this this one-day Zion. And when we get to chapter 60, we'll we'll get an even clearer picture of that, where God will be with his people. But do not miss the grace of God that, that in him bringing glory to himself, and when he does that, he lavishes his people with his loving provision. When he gives joy and peace to us for eternity, now let's pray. Lord, you are so good. I thank you for your word. I thank you that, that we can come, right? that, that, that we, we don't have to wonder. You've given this, this, this whole book your word to feast on, Lord and you've, you've bridged this gap between heaven and earth. You've invited you've invited us to come to you, Lord, and I pray that that is what we would do, that we would come, that we would eat, that we would drink, that we would listen diligently to you, that we would hear so that, so that our soul can live, Lord. Jesus, we love you, and in the ways that we, we don't love you, Lord, in the ways, um, if there's ways that we need to, forsake wickedness and sin. God, we make that so clear to us. Lord, and I pray for, um, for those of us that are struggling to let go of those things, to trust that you truly are better. God, would you help us in that, Jesus? Lord, we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.